All right, well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me, and let's open them up to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. While you're turning there, let me say a special word of greeting to our visitors this morning. Uh, We always love having visitors worship with us here at Mount Hermon, and we are especially glad that you could be with us here today. Uh, on this special day as we think about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And uh, we hope that you will be glad you have come. Uh, Let me also mention that if you didn't think to bring a Bible with you this morning, you're welcome to use one uh, provided in the seats in front of you. And you'll find our passage this morning in those Bibles uh, on page 834. 834. This morning we are celebrating... A historical fact. Uh, We are commemorating a historical event. Uh, Historical. It happened in history. It's also historic. It was a turning point in history. But I want to emphasize that it actually happened. It is historical. Uh, It is, however, the event that is probably the most important event in the history of the world. Had Jesus not been risen from the dead, it would mean that God was not fully satisfied with his cross work. It would have meant that something was lacking in his atoning death. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins And we would not have the hope of heaven. Without Christ's resurrection, we would not have the hope of our resurrection. Uh, He was the firstborn of the new creation. He was the firstfruits. When we commit our loved one's bodies to the ground, it would be permanent. There would be no expectation of a a future day of resurrected, glorified bodies. When we put the bodies of believers in the ground, we would have to mourn as those who have no hope were it not for the resurrection. Without Christ's resurrection, He would not be the risen Lord Jesus sitting on His throne, unfolding and carrying out the purposes of God in history. Without the empty tomb, we would not have Jesus as our intercessor, the living God-man, standing before God on our behalf this very moment, bringing our needs to God, bringing God's blessings to us. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. Without the resurrection, there would be no good news to proclaim. There would have been no day of Pentecost. No Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of men. There would be no church. There would be no missions. There would be no hope of a second coming. Every important truth... Regarding the ultimate happiness and salvation of sinners stands or falls on this truth. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins and we are headed to hell. 
But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and he did, then we who are believers have the earnest expectation of eternal life ahead for us. Dear Christian friend, is that your eager expectation this morning? If you're here this morning and you're a believer, is your heart brimming with the joy of what Christ has done for you? Are you brimming with joy because of what is ahead for you, guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ? Are you resonating with the hymn we just sang? Love's redeeming work is done. Alleluia. Fought the fight, the battle is won. Alleluia. Death in vain forbids him rise. Alleluia. Christ has opened paradise. Alleluia. It's the state of your heart this morning. To lead us in thinking about the resurrection, I actually want us to look at something that was said just before the resurrection. So instead of looking at Matthew 28, which Brother Mike read for us just a few moments ago, where we read of Christ rising from the dead, I want us to look at Matthew 27, where Jesus is being crucified. Because in the midst of that event, I want us to see what the people were saying as they mocked our dying Lord. Look at Matthew 27 in two verses. Verses 39 and 40. Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40. This is the very word of God. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So picture the scene. Here's the Lord Jesus already nailed to the cross. The cross has been lifted up. Jesus is on it. It is set in its place. He is between two criminals who are also dying. And these men are dying together on Golgotha. Golgotha is a hill that at that time was just outside of Jerusalem. And people on their way into the city would pass by and they would see the criminals hanging there on crosses. Uh, This was a deterrent to crime. This was a warning to people as they entered or left Jerusalem. We don't tolerate lawbreakers here. See these criminals on their crosses? Uh, On this day, a number of people had gathered together to watch these particular men die. Most had gathered to watch one particular man die. And what were the people saying as they watched Jesus in his final agony? They were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. In one sense, this was an insult This was the people mocking Jesus and declaring that they did not believe who he was claiming to be. He claimed to be the Son of God, but they would have none of it. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. It was the ridicule of unbelief from the people. 
In another sense, this was a trial for our Lord. Because he really could come down from the cross. He really could call down a million angels to rescue him, to to wipe out the entire Roman legion. This was a temptation. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Would, Would he be so desperate to prove that he was who he claimed to be and so desperate to get off of that cross and to get away from the pain and the agony that he would actually come down? And fail to complete the work that his father had given him to do. The work for which he was born. But of course Jesus was not desperate to prove anything. And he willingly submitted himself to this suffering. And he was faithful to the end. And he did not give in to the temptation to come down from the cross. And yet, in another sense, this insult may have also been a comfort to Jesus. Because this quote was a reminder to him of the overarching plan. These people were misquoting what Jesus had said, but they got enough of it right that it was an encouragement. Because yes, the plan was all along for Jesus to be destroyed, but that wasn't the end of the plan. The temple would be rebuilt. There would be a resurrection. The mocking people did not realize this, but their words of mockery were actually gospel words. The temple would be destroyed. The temple was Jesus. And the temple would indeed be rebuilt. It was Friday in Matthew 27, but Sunday's coming. Jesus endured the cross, bearing the pain looking to the joy before him that would come through the resurrection. And this insult was a reminder to our dying Lord that his death was not the end. That resurrection was coming. The fact that these people passing by mocked Jesus in this way shows that this quote was all over town. People were talking about this quote. They had read about it in the Jerusalem Times, right? A man named Jesus is walking around claiming that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. A lot of people didn't know a whole lot about this man, Jesus, but that was the word on the street. He claimed he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, it sounded like a terrorist threat. It sounded like a threat from a madman, Uh, Many different people in Israel's history had gathered groups of followers together and launched attacks on Jerusalem, and the temple itself had been the object of attack many times. Of course, we remember how Israel's temple had been utterly destroyed once before by the Babylonians. It, It was laughable that this man thought he could rebuild the temple in three days, But might he really gather his followers and try to destroy it? It was this that put Jesus on the cross. Look back at Matthew 26, just a page before. Look at what happened when Jesus was put on trial before Caiaphas. Look at verse beginning of verse 57. So Matthew 26, verse 57. 
Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Note this. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So so the religious leaders were trying to find something they could use against Jesus to justify their decision to put him to death. And though many false witnesses were found, they still didn't have what they needed. They didn't have something that would be believable to the public, something that would be justifiable to the Roman authorities. We have to find something good. We have to find something that will strike fear in the hearts of the people. And these false witnesses come forward with this quote. And it was based on this charge that he was found guilty. If you were to ask the people of Jerusalem the next day who were shouting, Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Crucify him. If you would ask them, why are you saying that? Why do you hate this man so much? Many would have said, well, he threatened the temple. He threatened our holy place. How can we let a man like that live? But of course, the men who came forward with this charge were false witnesses. For Jesus never said He was going to destroy the temple. In John chapter 2, we hear what Jesus actually said from his own lips. And at first, I wasn't going to have you turn there, but I think I want you to turn there to see it. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 2. And let's look at what actually was said, and then we will see the glory that's in it. So John 2, beginning in verse 13. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If people in Jerusalem had been on Facebook, 
the news all over Facebook would have been this. This man, Jesus, threatens to destroy the temple. But you and I have done the fact-checking. We've gone to the original source. Jesus cleansed the temple because the Jews were making a mockery of it. And then when asked for a sign to show his authority for doing this, Jesus said, destroy this temple, meaning you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was not threatening to destroy the temple. He was watching the people of Israel destroy the temple by turning it into a marketplace. Now, I want us to see three glorious truths from this statement by Jesus that his disciples remembered after he rose from the dead and it calls them to believe. Here we go. We're going to spend almost all of our time on the first one. It is glorious. I hope you're ready. Number one, Jesus is the ultimate temple of God. Jesus is the ultimate temple of of God. The people here just assumed he was talking about the building. But that building was a was about to cease to exist anyway. Jesus was not talking about the structure, the building, the temple. He was talking about his own body. He is the ultimate temple of God. Now, that truth should be sweet and glorious to your soul. But you and I are not used to temples, and therefore they seem strange to us, and therefore this truth might not be immediately sweet and glorious to you. So let me try and help you see why this is so good. First, you have to understand that the very first temple that ever existed was not a building at all. It was a garden. The Garden of Eden was earth's first temple. The rest of the earth was good, but it was unworked, undomesticated, uncultivated. But God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, the one place on earth prepared as a holy place where God himself would dwell with man. The Garden of Eden was paradise because God himself dwelt there with Adam and Eve. And as Adam and Eve worked the garden... And as they had children, and their children had children, and their children's children had children, that garden was to grow. Remember, before sin, there was no death. Had there been no sin, the families would have kept growing, and Adam would still be alive today. The garden would have just kept growing until it filled the entire earth. Paradise, the temple of God, the garden, would fill the whole earth. And all of us would be living in the special presence of God had it not been for the fall. How sweet it must have been to walk and talk with God. And how heartbreaking it must have been for Adam and Eve after their sin to be cast out of that garden. But there can be no sin in heaven there can be no sin in the holy place of God. And so Eden was lost and the first temple was gone. But then years later, God chose one nation of all the nations of the earth to experience something of Eden again. 
And so God brought Israel to Mount Sinai, as we've seen in our study of the book of Exodus. And there he gave them precise instructions on how to build a particular kind of structure. While they were still traveling, that structure was to be a tent. We call it the tabernacle. Once they came into Canaan and settled permanently, it would become a permanent structure, the temple. God instructed that the temple was to be decorated with garden imagery. The walls were to be decorated with golden palm trees and flowers. The bronze pillars were to have pomegranate patterns carved into them. The lamp in the temple was fashioned in such a way that it looked like an almond tree. And in this temple, there was the Holy of Holies, the inner room where God's special presence dwelt. His special presence dwelt above the mercy seat. So you have the Ark of the Covenant carrying within it the Word of God, the tablets of the law. And then you have the top of the Ark of the Covenant with two cherubim, one on each side, just like the two cherubim that guarded the Garden of Eden. And God's special presence was said to dwell in that room. But... Because there can be no sin in God's holy presence, no one could actually enter it. Only the high priest, and then only once a year after being purified. That little room, however, was the closest thing to Eden on earth. And Israel, of all the nations of the world, was granted to have God's special presence dwelling among them in that temple. Well, Israel was now the earthly kingdom of God, and they were commanded to take God's glory to the nations. So God was in the midst of her, and now Israel was to go out and expand. Psalm 96, let the nations be glad. Had Israel been faithful? Had Israel kept God's commandments and trusted God's word, Israel would have been blessed, they would have flourished, they would have expanded throughout the world. But like Adam... They too fell into sin and into wickedness. And the result was that God had his own temple destroyed. And Eden was lost again. In Jesus' day, the temple had been rebuilt. And King Herod had undertaken a complete 46-year renovation of the structure. He took the the, the second temple, he raised it down to its very foundations, and for 46 years, they had been renovating, reconstructing the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, no longer there. When you read the history of this second temple, you see that it was typically under the care of very wicked pagan men who sought only to use the temple for their own prestige and their own gain. But here comes Jesus. If Adam had been faithful, Eden would have spread throughout the world. Adam failed, but Jesus is called the second Adam. Had Israel been faithful, the glory of God's name would have spread throughout the world. But Israel failed. Yet Matthew calls Jesus Israel. In other words, what Adam and Israel failed to do, Jesus has come to do. He would succeed in bringing the nations to God. 
he would succeed in bringing people from all tribes and peoples and nations into the special, awesome, joyful presence of God. And Jesus was not going to take his people from the nations and bring them to a garden. And he was not going to take his people from the nations and bring them to a building that in that building they would meet with God. No, Jesus came to bring people from all the nations to himself. Jesus is now the temple to which he is bringing the nations in order that through him they may know God and have the presence of God and live before the very eyes of God. Here is the awesome truth about Jesus Christ. He is God. The special presence of God slept in a manger in Bethlehem. The special presence of God worked in a carpenter shop in Nazareth. The special presence of God on earth had no place to lay his head as he traveled from village to village preaching the truth and healing the sick. In Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus said something provocative and astonishing, something that upset the Pharisees greatly. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. In the mind of the average Jew, there was nothing greater than the temple. Nothing. The temple is where God dwells. The temple is where people go to have their sins forgiven. The temple is where the priests are who make intercession for us before God. The temple was the center of all of Israel's blessing. The temple was the center of Israel's relationship with God. And here comes this man from Nazareth and he says, something greater than the temple is here. And then he goes further. You realize how radical Jesus was. Lewis knew what he was talking about when he said either he was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Don't call him a good teacher. He was either crazy or he was the son of God. He goes on, more audacious, more shocking. He declares in the presence of a crowd, I have the authority to forgive sins. Unbelievable. Everyone knows you go to the temple for forgiveness. Everyone knows that it's through the sacrifices, it's through the priesthood, it's through the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year. That's where forgiveness is found. Not some guy from Nazareth. Yet Jesus declares his ability to forgive sins. And then he, who was greater than the temple, goes to the temple And he sees how it is being destroyed by the people of Israel. And it's not that they're physically tearing it down. It's that they're turning the holy place of God into a marketplace to serve the greed of ungodly men. And so Jesus goes in and he turns over tables and he runs the money changers out because of what he sees. And then immediately after cleansing the temple, what does he do? He goes outside of the city to the sick and the lepers. Guess who could not go to the temple? The sick and the lepers. They weren't allowed to make sacrifice there. They were forbidden. They were unclean. 
But the true temple went to them. And he calls them to himself. Jesus is the true temple. The one to whom the temple always pointed. And he is open to anyone. Friend, do you want to know what it is to have a relationship with God? Do you want to know what it is to experience in your own life God's goodness, His presence, His power, His blessings? Then you do not need to book a plane headed to Jerusalem. And you do not have to go on a quest to find the lost garden of Eden. Jesus Christ is the very image of God and it is in Him that we find God. It is in Him that we meet God. He is the God-man bringing us and God together. And through Him, we who are His will one day be in the new heavens and the new earth where we will experience Eden 2.0. Where is the priesthood that will intercede for your soul before God? It is not at our local Roman Catholic Church. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is our sacrifice that will take away your sins and bring you forgiveness before God? It is not at a temple. It is not at even a Roman Catholic Mass. Our sacrifice is Jesus Himself, the Lamb of God. Where do we go to worship God? Where do we go to bring our petitions to Him and our thanksgivings to Him? We go to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name through Jesus. He is our temple. Very briefly, two more points. Second, we see in Jesus' quotation, not only that he is the ultimate temple of God, but that he would be destroyed. That he would be destroyed. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, he wasn't speaking about the building, but himself. He saw what they were doing to the literal temple and he knew that in due time he would be destroyed as well. They were making a mockery of the literal temple. He knew it wouldn't be long before they were making a mockery of him. What we have in Jesus' words is prophecy. He was predicting what he knew was coming. And yet we have to mark this. Though Jesus knew what was coming for him, He chose to stay. Jesus knew that he was going to be destroyed, but instead of running to the coast and taking the first ship out of there, he stayed. His love for his Father, his love for sinners, compelled him to finish the work his Father had given him to do. Just like the Garden of Eden, Just like the original temple, sin would be the end of him. But it wouldn't be his sin. The sin of all who would ever believe on him would be placed on his shoulders. And in their place, he would bear the death that their sins deserved. Jesus Christ, the true temple, was destroyed not by a Babylonian army, Not by cherubim who who exiled people and then guarded the gates. 
Jesus Christ, the true temple, was destroyed by the very wrath of His Father poured out against the sins of you and me, if you know Christ. Jesus wasn't killed against His will. He laid down His life. Greater love has no man than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But praise God, that's not the end of the quote. He didn't simply say, destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days, I will build it up. Friends, understand that for the vast majority of Israelites at that time, the temple had been being renovated their entire lives. The rebuilding of the temple under Herod was something they had always lived with. 46 years of work to get the temple to where it now was. And Jesus says, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And yet he was talking about something far more complex and difficult than a building. He was talking about human life. He was talking about his own body. They could destroy him, and in three days, he would be alive and well. Certainly, the resurrection of Jesus was a Trinitarian project. Because we read in verses in the Bible that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And we read in Scripture that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And of course, and this is mysterious and we won't go there because it will boggle your mind, but actually the divine nature of the Son of God was involved in raising the human nature of the Son of God from the dead. The three in one participated in this project together. But what we have in our verse is something astounding. In his human nature. In his humanness, Jesus went to the cross for sinners. In his humanness, he experienced real pain, real agony, real death. And the Father accepted his sacrifice. And the work was finished. And the obedience of Jesus was complete. And our God loves to bless obedience. So in his human nature... Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth, and that included the authority to take his life back up again. Jesus always had authority as the divine Son of God in his divinity, but now a man, flesh and bone, because he was the perfect Adam who fulfilled everything that God gave him to do. He was given as a man the authority over all things. Even the authority to get up from the dead. John 10, 17, 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What does all this mean? It means that Jesus stands today as the risen, glorified temple to which we can come to know God and commune with God. It means that Jesus stands alive and well, now ascended into heaven, 
able to give forgiveness and a right relationship with God to anyone who will come to him. So let's go back to our scene. This is how we'll close. Picture the scene. Jesus is dying on the cross. And we read in Matthew 27, verse 50, that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died for sinners. And what does the next verse say? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer are people blocked from experiencing the special presence of God. No longer do your sins or my sins have to keep us from fellowship with God. Instead, when we come to Jesus and believe on Him, the special presence of God that used to dwell in the Holy of Holies comes to live in our very souls. Jesus is the temple, but He comes and dwells in us by His Spirit, and we become temples to God. God and man meeting together in your very soul. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a mystery. What a marvelous mystery. What is the meaning of the torn veil? It's a call being issued forth from God to you. No matter what you have done, if you come to Jesus, you can be made right with God. No matter what sins you've committed, no matter how guilty you might feel, no matter how ashamed you are, no matter who you have hurt, or how messed up your life might be at this moment, none of that matters. The curtain is gone. Come to the temple. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Come to Jesus, and through Him, paradise will be yours. Because paradise is just another word for the presence of God. Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and in three days I will build it up. And He did. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.